0: In the year 1993, the city of Chicago hosted the World Parliament of Religions and at this gathering there were thousands of delegates from all kinds of uh, religions around the world. And there was everything from Buddhists to Zoroastrians uh, to different swamis and uh, religious cults and small offshoot religions and many of them all coming together for the purpose of uh, finding unity between the different religions. And uh, one person was there with a, a, a different uh, motivation. Uh, Dr. Uh, Erwin Lutzer of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago uh, was decided to, to go and to engage with some of these people at this, this parliament of world religions. And he says as he went around to the different uh, stations and different booths and different displays, he said he wanted to find if there was any religion out there, a, another religion that claimed to have a sinless savior. And he said he went, he started, he went uh, to a Hindu Swami and asked them if there was a, any uh, you know, Hindu Swamis that were uh, sinless, if they had a, a, a sinless savior. And the Swami got irritated with him and said, if someone claims to be sinless, uh, they're not Hindu. And Lutzer went around to some different booths. He went around uh, to, to the Buddhists and talked to them. And he was taught that As he engaged with them, that um, Buddha uh, taught that all outward things are only distractions to a life of discipline and contemplation. And that Buddha sought enlightenment and taught his followers to do the same thing. Uh, But that Buddha died seeking enlightenment. And so there was no sinlessness for Buddha. What about Bahula? He claimed that his writings were revelations from God and more perfect than uh, others, but he never claimed perfection or sinlessness for himself. And when Luther came to representatives of uh, the Muslim faith, uh, he already knew that the Quran taught that the Prophet Muhammad admitted that he himself was in need of forgiveness. So, try as he might, uh, Luther could not find a religion that, that taught that there was a that they had a sinless Savior. As we look again today at uh, the Gospel of Matthew and the birth account of Jesus Christ. And we think of Jesus coming into this world. And as we walk through this, I hope that you'll keep uh, your Bible open to uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1 as we look through this verse by verse. But we're going to see that as we gather here for, for Christmas Eve and as we celebrate Christmas tomorrow, that we have something far different. Uh, we don't have another sinner that is in need of a salvation forgiveness another uh, sinner that we worship that is in need of salvation uh, but we have someone that has has come into this world in a very distinct and different way showing that he is distinct and different from all others and that he has come with a purpose that Jesus was born with a miraculous purpose with a miraculous birth for a marvelous purpose so let's walk through this passage together again Matthew 1 18 through 25. We're going to see at the beginning of this as we take a look at it that it stresses that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. It says, reading again in verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So as we walk through this It says, uh, the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. So yeah, this section, this is about uh, the birth of Jesus Christ. It tells us straight up, Matthew, what this is all about. We're looking at the birth of Jesus. Matthew gives us an account of this. Uh, There's also another uh, very full account in the Gospel of Luke. And you have to put these two together to get all of the different details. And if you look at the Gospel of Luke, it's going to give some more uh, perspective, especially coming from uh, the uh, point of view of, of Mary, whereas Matthew's account really gives us a point of view, especially with Joseph. But we see here, it talk, when it talks about the birth of Jesus, it's actually the word Genesis. It means origin, the origin of Jesus Christ. And we see in one sense, his, uh, as the, the son of God, uh, he had no origin, that as God, the second person of the Trinity existed for all eternity. But as far as the God-man, Jesus, coming into this world, this is how it took place. And it says, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, uh, betrothed, uh, for us, we'd have been, we would think of this as the word for engagement, that uh, two people, they're not married yet, uh, but engaged. Although for the Hebrews, betrothment uh, was a, A more, even more serious thing, an even more binding thing uh, than what we think of as engagements. And so in verse 19, when we look ahead, you're going to see that uh, it even refers to Joseph already as her husband. But he was only the husband in the sense of being betrothed, not of actually being married quite yet. And so in this period, they're not quite married yet. And so they were not yet having uh, the uh, sexual relations that a husband and a wife would have together once the marriage was finalized. And that's what it says in this verse uh, that they were betrothed, but before they came together, and that's what it means, it came together here, uh, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, which we see that's, that's a big deal. Because under normal circumstances, You're not found to be with child until after a man and a woman have come together, because that's how biology works. So she was with child, and it says here, specifically from the Holy Spirit, that this was a miraculous thing. This was caused by God the Holy Spirit. We believe there is one God who exists as Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and this was a miracle of the Holy Spirit causing Mary to become pregnant. As I mentioned, Luke's Gospel gives us the perspective from Mary. And when we look at that, we realize that uh, the Lord, through the angel Gabriel, had appeared to Mary to, uh, before this happened to let her know what was going to happen. And Gabriel appeared to her, told her that this was God's plan for her. And in uh, Luke, it records Mary saying, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So this is something that God, for his reasons, chose this young woman, Mary, uh, to be the one to, to carry the one that would be God in her womb. And that Mary was willing to do this, knowing this was going to be a difficult thing. How is she going to explain this? What was this going to mean for her life? And so for Joseph's perspective, we see in verse 19 of Matthew, it says, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. As I mentioned, this talks about this from Joseph's perspective. And just imagine how you would feel as a young man, a godly man. It says here he's a just man. So he was uh, making sure to... uh, Preserve her purity, uh, to do things the way that God wanted them to do, uh, to wait until the marriage was was finalized before they came together. And I'm sure he was looking forward to this, as any person would. That he had this this, this uh, beautiful young lady, a godly, godly young lady, and then all of a sudden he finds out that she's pregnant. You know how devastated he must be, because your first instinct is not to think, well. I bet I know what happened. I bet the Holy Spirit did this. (laughs) And that she's still a virgin. I'm sure he was devastated. But it says he was a just man. So we see that that he's still filled with compassion towards her. And that's why it says being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he was heartbroken. He had to assume that she had been with another man and had betrayed him in that way. But yet he didn't want to just put her to shame. He didn't want to drag her through the mud but he thought he would divorce her quietly. Now we think of, again, divorce usually as referring to after a couple is married. And this is, again, why betrothal in the Hebrew culture is is a more serious uh, thing, even though they weren't completely married and finalized yet. This would not have been sin for Joseph to do this. They weren't married yet. And especially if she had uh, betrayed uh, their their covenant, if she had been with another man, Someone that uh, she was not, you know, uh, sexual relations are for a man and a woman who are married to each other, not engaged, not dating, and definitely not with someone else uh, when you're betrothed to someone else. But he didn't want to put her to shame. He wanted to break off the, the engagement, and that's what it means by divorcing her, obviously with a very broken heart. But then verse 20 tells us kind of what happened next, that God steps in and it says, but as he considered these things, notice he didn't rush off to a rash decision. He didn't very quickly just run off to, to do this. He didn't uh, just react at the, the drop of a hat. You know, and that's a lesson for us too. There's times we need to step back. We need to think. We need to be careful before just reacting to something. And during this time, it says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. and it says, in a dream. Now, Sometimes we think of angels... You know, as these cute little beings, or we dress our kids up as angels for the, for the, you know, Christmas plays or things like that at times. But an angel, you know, in scripture was a mighty being, a warrior being, and appeared to him in this dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Basically, the, God spoke through this angel and told him, I, I know what you're thinking. And I know you're afraid that you'd be going into this, you'd be going into to marriage with uh, someone that has, has, has done this, but do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So God communicated to Joseph that uh, Mary has not been unfaithful to you, she has not been with someone else, that this is a miraculous thing that God has done in her womb, causing her to be, be with child, when she has actually not been with a man yet. We also notice some things here. The Lord supernaturally revealing to him what happened. He says, Joseph, son of David. Just notice that again. David wasn't his immediate father, but David was his ancestor. Because Jesus was from the, the line of David. And he was coming to actually to sit on the throne of David, to rule with the promises that God had made to David that one of his descendants would be the the Messiah. One of his descendants would would rule forevermore. And so it's very important that Joseph was the son of David. Although as we're going to see that Jesus was not biologically Joseph's son, that he was legally Joseph's son. And biologically, he does trace back through Mary's side also to David as well. But things are not as they seem. Mary is pure and as godly as Joseph had hoped. And Joseph must adopt this child as his son. So that he would be legally of the line of David in succession for this throne. And this was a miraculous conception. Oftentimes we talk about the virgin birth. And that is true. Uh, But even more, if we wanted to be specific, it wasn't just a virgin birth. But it was a, a virgin conception that Jesus Christ was uh, conceived in uh, the womb of Mary, and that from that moment of conception, uh, that which was very small uh, within the womb of Mary was, was the, the God-man, fully God and fully man. And as amazing as that is to think of uh, God, the Son of God, being in a manger, the one who, through whom God created this whole world, even more to think of uh the, the Lord had to be of a size almost unnoticeable in, in the womb of a virgin. This is a miraculous thing. There's some skeptics that say, well, how can we as modern people believe in something like the virgin birth or the virgin conception? And they tend to think, well, those, those Hebrews back in those days, you know, they were gullible and they could believe this type of thing. I'll tell you, people in those days, they still understood where babies came from. Okay, they still understood that a child does not come into this world unless there is a man and a woman that come together in a certain way. They understood this. They understood that this was not a normal thing, that this was a miraculous thing, that this was of God. And that was the point of him to know that this was God's doing. This was a miraculous birth. This was a miraculous conception. Some people think, well, the virgin birth, that's just an impossible thing. I'll tell you, I've never had a problem believing in the virgin birth. And I don't think you should either. I believe that God created this whole world, okay? And I believe that God caused all the matter, everything in this world, to come into existence uh, in an instant. And that in a period of six days, God was able to shape this world into what we have, that he was able to, to create life. And bring everything together and he did that very very quickly he wouldn't even have had to take six days if he wanted to but he did i was at a at a body shop a few months ago because i had some hail damage on my car uh, from back in april and i saw there was a sign hanging there in this in this body shop that said and maybe you've seen something like this that said you can pick two of these three and it said you can have it fast you can have it good Or you can have it cheap. I said, but you can't pick all three. If you want it fast and good, it won't be cheap. If you want it good and cheap, it won't be fast. And if you want it cheap and fast, it won't be good. But think of God, how he created this whole universe. He did it. He created this universe fast, and he created it good, and it didn't cost him anything. And God was able to get that done. And if he can do that, I think he can manage a virgin conception. I think it's not that hard for him. God created the first man out of dirt. He created Adam from the soil and the ground. If he can create Adam from dirt, I think he can take, create Jesus when he's got a lot more to work with there. You would already have material from Mary, and we don't know how, exactly how it works. There's mystery involved in this. We know there is. Mary would not have had a, the, a Y chromosome that's needed for a male. It's, again, how biology works. We don't know if God created that anew, if God took some of Mary's material and reshaped it the way that God reshaped Adam's rib when he created, created Eve. But God can do this. God made it work. And so I'll tell you this, that you, if you believe in God, you can believe in the virgin birth. If you believe that God exists and who he is, and what he's done, you can believe in the virgin birth. But it is a miracle. And that was the point of it. And it shows that Jesus is Joseph's legal son. But again, he's not his biological son. He came from Mary biologically, but he did not come from Joseph. But legally, he did come from the line of Joseph. uh, Recognized by him as his father, adopted uh, by him. And this was necessary, the legal throne, so that David would, uh, in this lineage, so that he'd be qualified to be of the throne of David and to fill those promises that were made to take place through him, but not biologically through him. And this points to the sinlessness of the Messiah, the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. And so we think of what was the reason for the virgin birth? You know, why did God do this? And I think we can think of a few reasons. I think one, it shows that there's something very special about this child. There's something very unique. I think it, it shows that uh, this is a miraculous birth. This is of the Lord. Because otherwise, this doesn't happen. And yeah, I know today there's ways with um, you know, uh, medical procedures, where I guess you could technically do something like this, uh, in a sense, of it being just a virgin. But you can't do it in the way, even today, uh, without material from a male somewhere. This is, still, this is a miraculous thing that happened. And it shows that this, this is the Messiah. This is from God. I think it's also a picture of this being the God-man. And the fact that we don't, we don't want to think of Jesus being 50% God, 50% man. And we don't want to think of, uh, I've heard that some, in the, some Muslims picture this as far as the Holy Spirit taking on a human form and having relationships with Mary. No, it wasn't like that. It was a miraculous thing that happened, I think, without her noticing in, in her womb. But through this, I think it helps us to realize who Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ is the God man, that he is fully divine and has always been fully divine but as of that moment of conception is also an authentic human being, fully man, fully human, and that he needed to be both of these. He needed to be God and he needed to be human in in order to fulfill the mission that God had given him. But I think also a very big reason for the virgin birth is to protect the sinlessness of the God man. Now he's God and as God he could not sin. But did he inherit Adam's guilt? Was this imputed to him? Did, was, he, did this, uh, was he it passed down to him? And it seems that the virgin conception was necessary for Jesus to be born without being affected by Adam's sin. So that he would be born sinless. And throughout the ages people have had different theories how this works. Some Uh, believe, and could be correct, that the sin nature. Remember, Adam and Eve, they were created sinless. They were created perfect, Uh, but they rebelled against God, and they sinned, and then humanity fell into sin, and now their, their nature was changed, and since then, we have all come into this world as sinners. That's our default setting. We come into this world with a sin nature, and one theory was that uh, the sin nature is passed down through through the men, through the males, and some of the ladies are thinking that sounds about right. Uh, but if that is the case, uh, then it could be that the reason that Jesus did not have a human father was to to be a firewall there, to keep that sin nature from being passed down. Now, even if that's not how it takes place, even it's just that. Uh, sin is imputed to all of Adam's descendants because he is the representative head. That still Jesus uh, having a virgin birth means that Jesus was not born in Adam. He was not born with him as the, his, his ultimate uh, father, that Jesus instead was a new federal head, representative head for humanity. And therefore his sin, the sin of Adam was not imputed to him. The Bible is really clear that Jesus was sinless. He was pure. He was sinless from the beginning, and he was sinless until the end. Hebrews 4.5 says that Jesus was tempted in every respect, just as we are. He endured these things. He knows temptation. But it says specifically, but without sin. And it's really important for you and I to believe that Jesus was sinless. I've talked to some people And talk to them, who do you believe Jesus is? And I've asked them, do you believe that Jesus sinned just like us? And when I talked to him, he said, yeah, of course he did. I said, oh, we got to talk. Because if you believe that Jesus sinned, then you don't have a savior. If the lifeguard is drowning, the lifeguard isn't able to save you. You need a lifeguard that isn't drowning in order to be able to save you. And so we need to be really clear about this. And so because of the virgin conception, Jesus is not affected by the sin of Adam. He was firewalled from this. It was kept from him. And so Jesus is a sinless Savior, a sinless Savior for us. And the beginning of a a new type of humanity, a fresh start, 1 Corinthians 15.45 calls Christ the last Adam. He's He's a new Adam, A new start to humanity. The first Adam failed and fell into sin. And we all are culpable for that. And we all follow in his footsteps, sinning and sinning. We need a Savior who is different, who is sinless. And Jesus is the only one. Later in his book, Christ Among Other Gods, where Erwin Lutzer talks about being at the Parliament of World Religions, later on, Erwin Lutzer writes this. He says, Scan the religious histories. Go to the library and read all about the great religious leaders of history. Read not simply what they taught, but what they had to say about themselves. Look not for a prophet, for their name is Legion, but find a savior, a qualified sinless savior. You will discover that Christ has no competitors. If there were another who claimed sinlessness, we would be glad to check out his credentials And to see how they compare with Christ. Mention the requirement of sinlessness and the religious field clears. Only one man is left standing. Christ lives up to his name. We see the name Jesus. What is his name and what does it mean? So Jesus is born of a virgin and Jesus was born to save Verse 21 says, She, this is the angel still speaking to Joseph, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus does live up to his name. And they were told they didn't just pick out the name for him. We tend to pick out names for our kids, and there's things that we like, and our names might have something to do with how the kid ends up being. But you could name your child Joy and end up with the grumpiest child that's ever walked on the face of the earth. But when an angel, the Lord speaks to an angel and tells you this is what you're going to name your child. Then the Lord is picking out this name. You know there's a reason behind this. That God is saying something. And the name Jesus literally means the Lord saves. In Hebrew it would be Yahshua. And that's what the name Jesus literally means. And so Jesus is going to live up to his name or not. And he lives up to it by being the one who saves. And that's why it says, for he will save his people from their sins. We'll come back to this. Verse 22 says, then all this took place. All this to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet." He's talking about the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 7. He says, "Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us." This is a prophecy that was given to the prophet Isaiah about 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years—that's a long time—and it said that there, in this Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And when this is translated, when Matthew talks about this, uh, he uses the Greek word parthenos, which specifically means virgin. So if there's any, some people debate, well, the, the word that's used in Hebrew, can it mean just young woman, does it mean virgin? I think there's a lot of good reasons to believe that it means virgin, and the young maiden at that time a godly would be expected to be a virgin anyways. Uh, but Matthew makes it super clear that he intends this prophecy to mean virgin. He uses the word parthenos, which is a Greek word, specifically meant virgin. And we see through Matthew's account here as well that uh, all of this saying, this, wasn't, this was before they came together, this was by the Holy Spirit, Either Jesus was really born of a virgin or the Bible is lying to us. It's one or the other, okay? And the Bible is not lying, this this is the truth. And in 700 years ago, there also may have been a near fulfillment that happened. This is common in prophecy, but Jesus is the far fulfillment. He's the ultimate fulfillment of this. Again, showing that Jesus is the Messiah. And also revealing another name for him not a name that, that he was called on a day-to-day basis, but that described who he is. Emmanuel means God with us. And think of how, that, how literally that is fulfilled for us in Jesus Christ. It is God with us. Because Jesus Christ is literally the God-man. The Son of God, the true God, 100% God, that is now in human flesh, joined to human flesh. Uh, nature in one person and with us that he came into this world we do not worship a God who is distant a God that has remained silent a God that is apart from you we worship a God that came into this world and lived a life like we live a God that uh, came into this world and that as Jesus Christ with the human nature experienced real temptation He knows the things that you and I go through. He knows how difficult life is. He's experienced suffering. He's experienced betrayal. He's experienced many, many terrible things because this was his mission. But yet without sin, and that he needed to do this, he's with us, he's alongside of us. And he's here to be with you as well. He came into this world, he dwelt among us. Verse 24 it says, when Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. So Joseph obeyed. It's one thing to hear something from God. How often is it something that God tells us something to do, uh, but we smile, we nod, and we do something else. But Joseph obeyed. He did this, and he knew that this was going to change his life. He knew there was going to be all kinds of things that would come from this. It would be hard. But he obeyed. He did this, and he married Mary, he believed God. He believed God's word through this. And as much as other people might say, Joseph, you're being gullible, uh, why would you do this? That he believed God and he fulfilled what God called him to do. And then in verse 25, it says, But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Again, meaning God saves. This means that they did not consummate their marriage, that even though uh, th- they got married and they had official, usually you're looking forward to the, uh, the wedding night. And um, it says they did not consummate their marriage with sexual relations until after Jesus was born. I think it's implied here that sometime after Jesus was born, they did and they had normal relations. In fact, we know from Scripture that Jesus had siblings. It talks about brothers and, and, uh, and sisters that he has. So Mary wasn't actually a virgin forever. There became teachings that developed in the Middle Ages that Mary was a virgin forever, but that's not actually what the Bible teaches. Uh, she had other, other children. There's other things that developed during the Middle Ages too, that uh, even the birth of Jesus, that in order to preserve her virginity and um, biological aspects of virginity, that Jesus actually didn't have a normal birth, but uh, that he was like teleported out of the womb and all of a sudden he was there. That's not what scripture teaches. Uh, Jesus had a very unique uh, conception. And it was miraculous. But we believe he had a normal birth. And came into this world in, in the normal way after this. And that lived a, a human life. But his passage finishes again by saying, And he called his name Jesus. Again, Jesus meaning the Lord saves. What does Jesus save from? For some people say, I heard a child once said, you know, I, I better uh, get my piggy bank and save my pennies because I heard Jesus saves, and I should save too. You know, maybe you've lost a computer file. You're working on something and uh, you've uh, lost your rough draft because you weren't saving. Is that what this means? You know, Jesus saves. We know that's not what this means. A lot of them may have thought this means Jesus is going to save them from their physical enemies. He's going to finally be the, the Messiah is going to be the one that delivers them out of the hands of the Romans. uh, From the political oppression that they were undergoing. That's what they were looking forward to. Jesus was going to save them from the Romans. But remember what it said. It said, you shall bear a son, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people, from their sins. That's why Jesus came into the world. That's what Christmas is about. That is why we celebrate this. That is why this is such a big deal. We're not here to celebrate a a political ruler that came to cast off uh, some army. We're not here to worship some enlightened teacher that gave us an example for how to live. We're here to worship The Son of God, the God-man who came into this world to save sinners. That's why Jesus came into this world. Jesus was born to save sinners. And this is good news if you are a sinner. This is good news to me because I am a sinner. And the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you're here and you're realizing that you're a sinner, blessed be you. Because now you can know that Christmas is for you. Because Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners and there's none of us here who are not sinners. We've rebelled against God. We come into this world with a default setting because of Adam and Eve from the beginning that our hearts are pointed in the wrong direction. We're accountable for uh, that sin and we're accountable for our sins that we rack up every moment of every day. All the things that we shouldn't do and we do, all the things we should be doing and we don't do those things, we're sinners and we deserve condemnation. But Jesus came into this world to save sinners. And this, tell us, how did he do this? He didn't come by giving us enlightened teaching, an example to follow, so you can pull yourself by the bootstraps and be a better person. Because that's not how salvation happens. Jesus came into this world as someone that was born to die. That was his mission. He had to live a life first. He had to live a perfect life and he kept God's law perfectly the way that none of us have. We're required to keep God's law perfectly. We haven't done that, but Jesus did. And then Jesus died on the cross for our forgiveness. There's a lot of people that are going to think about Jesus. Unfortunately, a lot of people at Christmas, they're thinking about all kinds of other things. And uh, some. Characters that, that don't even exist, they're thinking of um, presence or family, and Jesus isn't even on their radar. But even a lot of people that think about Jesus, I want to ask you, are you thinking about Jesus and worshiping him for who he is? Do you know and do you love Jesus for the real reason by which he came? I want to finish by reading you another excerpt here from a book by Erwin Lutzer, Christ Among Other Gods. And he talks about how he was at this world parliament of religions. And he met at this a woman who said that she had come to know Christ through uh, this this cultish book called the Uranata book. And a book whose authorship is shrouded in mystery, probably something very uh, demonic. And this woman said that at last she, she met Jesus through this cultish book. Lutzer writes, Here is her story. She loved Jesus, she said, even before she could read. Her mother would read Bible stories to her, and whenever she heard about Jesus, her heart was warmed. She belonged to a liberal mainline Protestant church, and she adored her pastor. And one Sunday at the age of 10, she chose not to go to the children's church, but decided to stay in the auditorium to hear the pastor speak. She said, if I sit in the back and I'm real quiet and I keep my hands folded and I don't move, maybe they'll let me stay up here with the adults. Before the pastor began to speak, an older lady in the congregation spoke to her harshly, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be in the children's church. And she was terribly hurt. And rather than go to the children's church, she left the church and never returned. Point out, by the way, we do have children's church they get to the point where they want to be here, we're glad to have them in the service. It's the goal. Going on, Lutzer writes, at the age of 16, she resumed her quest for truth and became involved with a cult, the first one she was involved with. Their authoritarian attitude and demand for money caused her to leave. Then she was invited to a group that read uh, this mysterious Uranata book, and she said they, quote, gave me my Jesus They gave my Jesus back to me. And she asked if she could read a paragraph from the book to me, Lutzer writes. And she chose a story about the compassion of Christ from this false book. When Jesus was supposedly only 12, obviously she was very touched by his sensitivity. Lutzer writes, I can tell that you love him. I said, noticing the tears tears welled up in her eyes. Yes, I do love him, she replied. But why do you love him, I asked. I love him for his compassion. I love him as my Lord. I love him as my teacher. I love him as my friend, she said, holding her arms tightly across her chest. And I asked, Lutzer writes, do you also love him as your sinless savior? as the one who died on the cross and shed his blood to forgive your sins and reconcile you to God. She broke eye contact with me, glanced away for a second, and said, I've never thought about it in those terms. To which I replied, Lutzer wrote, If you do not love him as the one who died on the cross for your sins... You do not love him for the very purpose for which he came to this earth. I urged her to love him as Savior, to love him for a reason that corresponded to his name. It is possible to love Jesus, even to the point of tears, and to love him with fervor and still be lost forever. Yes, many love Christ for reasons that miss the central purpose for his coming. Ultimately, it is not even love for Christ that saves us. It is faith in Christ. Faith for the right reasons in the right Christ that gives us a right standing with God the Father. What a pity to know Shakespeare, but not a man of literature. To know Newton, but not as a scientist. But what an eternal tragedy to know Christ, as a friend, as a prophet, as a miracle worker, but not as a savior, unquote. Let me urge you, as you think about Jesus this Christmas, who do you believe he is? Joseph obeyed God and named him Jesus. The Lord saves. Do you look to Jesus as something short of who he truly is? Is he a mere teacher? Is he a mere example? Is he a mere messenger from God? Or do you believe that not only is he Lord of Lord, King of Kings, the one who fulfills these promises, but that he is also the sinless Savior that came into this world to take your place, to live a perfect life on your behalf, and then to die on the cross in your behalf, to take away your sins? Not just other people's, not just potentially to do that, but to die to take away your sins. And have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you turned to him in, in repentant faith, bowing the knee before him, and with open hands trusting him as the one that was sent into this world to save a sinner like you? To save you from your sins. This is the greatest gift of all. This is the greatest gift of Christmas that will never be surpassed. And I implore you to not leave that gift under the tree and to go to hell with that gift unwrapped. But for you to believe the Lord and for you to trust Jesus Christ personally Jesus Christ, the God man, the sinless Savior that died on the cross in your behalf. And may you be filled with new life and with joy in Christ forevermore because of what the sinless Savior has done for you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that in your deep, amazing love that you gave your Son into this world, that you gave the greatest gift that could ever be given, sending your Son into this world, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Thank you for this gift that we don't have to work for, we don't have to earn, but that Jesus paid for completely with his perfect life and his death on the cross. Lord, thank you that we do not worship an example, but we worship someone that came for real. We worship a sinless Savior that came knowing that he came to die on the cross for sinners like us. And it is our only hope. It is the only way. Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ. And may our hearts fully rest upon him, trusting him, each of us, trusting him alone as Savior, and being filled with joy as we live for him with gratitude and with him as King and Lord of our lives. You are full of grace, you are full of joy, full of mercy. And we worship Jesus Christ, our sinless Savior. In his name we pray, amen.